Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We've got a great show today. We've got Jackie Simmons. She is the creator of the Resilience Mastery Formula, but she's also a co-founder of the Teen Suicide Prevention Society. Um, Jackie's known as a resilience master. She believes that everybody has the ability to bounce, not break, but sometimes we forget. You know, and I think you're the co-founder of the Teen Suicide Prevention Society, and that's that's at a point where we can't bounce and we are going to break. Tell me how those two merge together. <laughs> that's a great, great question. I mean, my personal experience with suicide is that I got really, really lucky and my daughter survived. The night that she first tried, and I say that intentionally, the night she first tried to kill herself will be etched in my mind probably forever because that night I spent on a futon listening to her breathe. I was staring into the darkness in the direction of the ceiling. All the tears had stopped, the mutual I'm sorry's had been said, and finally she slept. And between us, her handwritten note lay her promise not to harm herself while I slept, like I was gonna close my eyes that night. So all night, I wondered what the hell just happened, pardon my language, but my world just changed. And the other question that haunted me was, how did I miss this? Fast forward, and we did everything you're supposed to do. Counseling, therapy, interventions, more attempts, hospitalization. And when all of that was done, well, first, while all of that was going on, I was totally grateful. Because while she was working with professionals, I sold myself on the idea that she was getting professional help. We didn't need to talk about it. So every moment that she was getting professional help sort of gave me permission to stay busy and avoid the conversation. It took a long time before I realized that it's the conversations we avoid that truly matter. None of this was on my mind last August, Leigh. And I know that people go, well, wait a minute, how does this all fit together? I'm, I'm a speaker. I help people wrap a message around their business. I've been helping entrepreneurial women sell themselves on themselves for decades because you can't sell anything to anybody if you don't buy it, if you don't buy into yourself first. So I've been doing that kind of work, and I host a three-day event, and everybody at the event gives a seven-minute talk. So my daughter was needing to write a chapter for an inspirational book, the Make It a Great Day book, a book of inspirational stories for teens, and she was stuck. So she had this brilliant idea. She was going to use her seven-minute talk. She'd speak her story, just one of her never-quit stories, and she'd get it transcribed for the book. I thought it was a great idea when she proposed it. Well, the morning of her talk, everything worked. I mean, the entrepreneurial women were great. They were all settling around. And they were getting into that space 
where you get nervous before you give a talk. And my daughter volunteered to go first. I was super proud. I had no idea what she was going to talk about, but I knew she would rock it. And I was right. She rocked me because the first words out of her mouth were about the fact that 3,000 teenagers attempt to take their own lives every day just in the U.S. Wow. That, is, that startles me. It startled me. And I'm, I'm, as a speaking coach, starting with the startling statistics, this is a great thing. But <laughs> as the mom, I was like, what? What are you talking about? And, and why then, is this on your radar screen? Uh, yeah. And then I went completely pale because she, her next sentence started with, when I was 14. And she started publicly sharing about her multiple suicide attempts as a teenager. For over 20 years, we hadn't talked about them. Heaven forbid I should put that thought back into her head. That's one of the greatest, most destructive myths of our time is that we could put a thought in someone else's head. But for 20 years, we hadn't talked about it. Now, all of a sudden, she's talking about it, but not to me, to an entire room of people at my event. I'm in the back of the room thinking life has gotten pretty bad and it can't get any worse. And then it did. And I went from pale to bone cold because the next part of her talk was how she still struggles with suicidal thoughts. Wow. As a mom, having two boys, that gives me the chills. She went on to say that she manages to find joy every day, but she still struggles. And I got whipped right back to that night 24 years earlier when I was laying on that futon wondering, what, what did I miss? How did I miss this? And now I'm in the back of the room at this event and my brain is imploded on how did I miss this again? I got saved, Lee, because she ended her talk with wanting to create a program, something that would help teens learn the coping skills that she's learned along the way before they need them. I think that's so key, Jackie, because, you know, by the time you realize how badly you need something, sometimes it's almost too late. What we're seeing more and more, Lee, since August of 2019 to today, what we have found is that more and more often the first sign that someone is at risk is an attempt and they don't all survive. And that's why we ended up founding the Teen Suicide Prevention Society, because every single program that we could find all had one entrance requirement. You had to be known to be at risk. Wow. Yeah. Either you had a prior attempt or a mental health diagnosis, or you were one of the at-risk youths, because we now have this whole culture of being at-risk. There was not a program that we could find that focused on prevention. As far as I'm concerned, every single one of those are intervention, and God knows we need them. Okay? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is not about that they're not doing good work, because every intervention specialist who mans a hotline is an angel in my mind. 
with 11% of our young adults being identified by the Center for Disease Control as struggling with suicidal thoughts, there is a huge need for intervention. But here's the truth. That leaves 89% of them without any help, without any support, without any way to prevent them from becoming part of the 11%. And so that's how we ended up creating a program that helps them break the silence and start the conversation. And we did it backwards. We're not trying to get teens to open up and talk about themselves. We're looking at teens to be able to have a script where they can start a conversation with their peers that allows the other teen to get their brain rewired in the conversation. And it's, it's done in a way where it's all practice. Everybody knows that the topic is suicide. Nobody's surprised. Nobody's being blindsided. It's not intervention. But every single practice conversation that one of our advocates has creates a buffer between their practice partner and a ledge that they didn't even know they were near. It, that's, that step is a step and I've, I have suicide has touched me personally two times in my or three times in my life the and that step you know the first time it touched me my son was 16 and his best friend lived down the street and he was 15 and you know I used to scream at him don't put that scooter on my front porch you know every day I'd come home and that scooter would be on my front porch and one morning at 5 a.m somebody's knocking at my door well that's kind of early for company and i you know i go and i was up because i go to the gym early and there is a, a pastor at my door a man with the collar on and he asked to speak to my son and he said i need to speak to to john richardson and i said well i'm his mom i need to know you know what's going on and he said, well, that Austin had committed suicide and he had left John a note. I was hit. It was like I was run over by an 18-wheeler. So I go upstairs and I bring John. And John's such an old soul. I actually, every time I think back on it, he, he, he is an old soul. But he held me and I held him. And, I, you know, where did it come from? Where did it come from? He was in my house every single day. Mm -hmm. and, and what the heck is wrong with me? Do I not pay attention? And, you know, and I've asked myself that question many times. And, and you know, I, I, of course, asked my son, what can I do to help you? And he said, the only thing I want from you, Mom, Austin and I really wanted our moms to become good friends because we really thought that you two would be such good friends. And he said, I want you to become her friend. And we did. And that friendship is, you know, it's deep in my heart. And, and I know she's done so much to work through it. And I'm sure she's asked herself a lot more questions than I have. But just not, I mean, if I would have known, if I would have had a script in my head or, you know, that I could have shared with my son or shared with Austin, and, and you can't go back and change things, but that's why when you when you talk about the prevention 
that's why it weighs so heavy on my heart. And and I and I'm kind of it's been 16 years ago, so I'm kind of past the self-blame part. I'm more into the how can I help part? How can I educate? And when we spoke on the phone before this show, I'm like, like this lady's got it going on. And this is something that we all need to learn about. So thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, well, you are so welcome. And thank you for being willing. The one thing about this topic, and, you know, trust me, I get it. We don't want to talk about it. And yet, on the Center for Disease Control website, there's a little line that says not talking about suicide is a risk factor of suicide. And I thought, oh, wow. But now, I'll tell you what, if you've had suicide touch your life, do not go to the to this Center for Disease Control website and look at their list of warning signs. It is an exercise in self-blame. That oh, will, boy. It, and I think it's, it's almost criminal that they have it up there because the biggest crime in the world is they have that list up there and nobody knows it's there until after the suicide has touched their lives. And then it's nothing but a way to, to make yourself feel bad. The truth is that we're all at risk. I'm just going to call it what it is. If you know someone that has taken their own life, you are now in a higher risk category. It's one of the six warning signs. It's one of the six indicators. I call them suicide key indicators of suicide risk. And one of them is if you know someone who's taken their own life. Now, back in the day, some of us knew someone. But now, we all know someone. We all know a celebrity chef, a talented singer, a gifted comedian. Thanks to media, we are all connected to someone who decided dying was better than living. And that means we are all at risk. And that's how the Suicide Prevention Advocate Program got born, was out of that recognition when I was doing the research that we're all at risk. It's not that there's this at-risk group. There's just those that have been identified or that self-identify as at-risk. We're all at risk, so let's do something about it. Let's do something to help each other while we help ourselves. Wouldn't it be lovely? If that's how people live their lives. Well, and think about what 2020 has done. I mean, it's a, it, it's been a challenging year for every person that's walking this earth. They've been challenged mm-hmm. in a way that they haven't before. The uncertainty that's out there, the hopelessness, you know, and so many times I'll talk to clients and, and I'll, I'll ask, have you ever had any self-harm thoughts or any suicidal thoughts? Mm -hmm. And Well, mm, no. So, you know. And here's the problem. I'm going to call it what it is, Lane. I apologize for interrupting. Not at all. If you ask somebody who has this low-lying struggle with, I don't want to be here, I don't want to do this anymore, all of these, quote, throwaway thoughts that they're struggling with, the last thing that's going to happen in their conscious mind when you ask, are you struggling with something, their their conscious mind is going to say, no, I'm good. Because it's not happening on a conscious level. 
And that's the biggest challenge. Well, and that's why that decision, and I've I've done a little bit of research, and I mean, I've read a great paper that says that's a 10-minute decision. And you know, when you're a teenager, 10 minutes is about the equivalent of two minutes. Oh, I was going to say, 10 minutes is a long time to a teenager. They don't have the prefrontal cortex. They don't have a pause button, so they've got nothing in between their impulsivity and action. Absolutely. And and sometimes, you know, we all have trauma in our life, but trauma happens and it happens to four-year-olds. It happens to people of all ages. And when we have trauma, those frontal lobes, they completely shut down. Well, those frontal lobes aren't really there until you're in your mid to late 20s. So when you're shutting down something that you're only maybe getting 40% of, mm-hmm. you, you are lacking. I mean, the only thing, the left side of the brain that where you make logic out of things and you plan it and where, you know, the left side bias for the positive. But if it's shut down, it's not out there looking for that positive. The right side, that's where all the emotion and love is, but that's where our survival response is. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of the cells are constantly assessing for danger in the right side of the brain. They're looking for threats. So when you, you know, you got a problem. The left side can't (laughs) claim, can't understand, can't problem solve. Mm -hmm. And the right side can't calm that brain down because you've got that amygdala, that emotional center driving the bus, and it's going 90 miles an hour. Oh, yeah, you got that right. I mean, I I love the fact that you have such a grasp on this lead. Very few people get the fact that our common ancestor, I call him Og, the caveman. We (laughs) all have the same ancestor. His brain was uniquely designed for survival. And while our brains have evolved and we now have this whole prefrontal cortex area with logic and memory, Og's only memory was, what do I know about this that's bad? Because that's how he survived. I know I better look to the left and to the right before I walk out of that cave. Yeah, you know, I mean, I walk out of my cave in the morning, I stretch it, I see a shaking bush. Before I can even digest what I've seen, I have sprung back into my cave. That's the beauty of the survival mechanism. I didn't have to stop and think, what do I know about a shaking bush? Oh, my friend Larry got too close to one yesterday and got eaten by a tiger. None of that thought process has to happen because Og's mind was programmed for, what about this is dangerous? You know? We still have that programming, and that's the problem. Well, we do, and and that's what I call the the flight or flight mode, mm-hmm. you know, because when you when you sense danger, that puts that autonomic nervous system out of balance, and it you know there's such a small window of tolerance that you that it needs to oscillate within, and when it goes above the window, you go into a hyperarousal state. When it goes below, you go hypo-aroused. So one minute you're anxious, you're worried. The next minute you're just numb. You're just so tired. You know, and you go up and down and up and down. Do you think you can make good decisions? No. No, absolutely not. And the challenge is that we don't know how to counterbalance it anymore. The the whole system, I call it the story of stress. I actually did a video about it. The whole system is elegantly designed 
for the caveman times. Because when Og jumped back into the cave or he won a fight after you do the fight or flight, he was doing the one thing that calms this down. He was deep breathing. He was going, <gasps> glad that's over. <gasps> okay, living another day. And our bodies have sensors at the base of the lungs that tell the body we're safe that produce the counterbalancing chemicals. The challenge is we're not taught, unless we studied yoga or some other methodology of relaxation, we're not taught to take deep, full breaths. And, oh, my God, how, how this showed up for my world, I'd be working at my desk, and my boss would come and stand behind me. And my brain would shut down because my body interpreted that as threatening. And he'd ask me a question. I couldn't come up with an answer. Yo, what was I doing while he was there? Was I taking a deep breath? Oh, no, I was mostly <sighs> holding my breath. And then he'd leave and walk down the hall, and I'd take a deep breath, and I'd go, that's what he wanted. Boom. And then I'd have to get out of my chair and chase him down the hall to give him the information. And it took becoming a stress management consultant before I finally realized what this mechanism was and started teaching my clients to put DSB on their phones so they'd remember to take a deep, slow breath. Before but you they know, Jackie, that's hard work to, to really take a deep, slow breath. It's hard work. I can't tell you how many people I'll do breathing exercises with here in the office. And I'll say, okay, I want you to go home and practice. Guess how many will go home and <laughs> practice. Guess. Yeah, well, practice and, and practice, your perfect practice makes perfection. Um, I, got a, I got a help tip for your friends, for your clients. Tell them to program an alarm in their phone to go off every hour. Ah. And when the alarm goes off, then they take three deep, slow breaths, reset the alarm for the next hour. That, because we need an outside stimulus or the easier way to even create a new program in your brain is to hook it to something you're already doing. And that's why I had mine put DSB, deep, slow breath, on their phones so that when they went to pick up their phone to make a call or when they went to answer a call, they would see that sign and take a deep, slow breath before they answered the phone. Well, that you know that is a great tip. Thank you for sharing that. And I will definitely, I will be using that on a regular basis. Because we all know that when we're talking, I'm taking 12 to 14 breaths a minute right now. I have to, to spit it all out. But I know my optimal breath rate is between four and seven breaths a minute. And I know that when I, when I get flustered or angry and my breath rate gets shorter and choppier. I know it changes my heart rate. My heart starts oh. beating faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that. And I, you know, if, and I, what I try to get people to do is link a deep breath, slow your breath rate down, slow your heart rate down. And, well, and those two things do go together. Absolutely. And creating the external cue will help. At least that's what I found with my clients. The building the muscle memory for relaxation and slow breathing is such a useful tool to develop. 
So I highly recommend, especially if someone's struggling with focus or productivity during their day, where they're finding themselves distracted or fuzzy thinking, this one tool can change what your perception of your day is and how much you get done. So you say this one tool, you mean your your breath work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, having this where you're programmed for it. So when the alarm goes off that you practice, oh, my other place to practice is when I'm driving. Yep. You know how you're driving and somehow you'll get a yellow light or a red light in your face? That's a great time to practice some deep, slow breathing. I can't believe you said that. That's what. That's how I learned how to slow my breath right down. <laughs> And the sadder part was it was when cell phones had become so popular and I was determined not to pick up my cell phone when I was at a red light. So I had to put something in place of it. So I started working on my breath work. But obviously, it's a great place to do it. Yes, it is. And having these this one tool, like I said, because it has so many benefits to the body and the brain. Now, we were talking earlier about another tool, and I'll be picking this up um, and giving the specifics of it. The challenge that we're having is that without these tools like the breath work, we're losing our ability to believe that we can bounce, not break. I think you make a really good point there. You know, this is a true statistic. I think it's 63% of the people that call 911 and say they're having a heart attack. They're not. They're having a panic attack. And that right there to me captures it, that we, we just don't, we think, oh, my gosh, I'm dying, I'm dying. And we're no, we know that we, we're not once it's all over. But while we're getting through it, we don't know what else to think. And I think that, you know, In a couple of minutes, when we come back from break, I would love for you to talk us through and and help us understand more about that. Because I I know I read somewhere that you talk about balance and that you really believe that shifting the focus off balance and onto mental and emotional resilience is the key to being able to survive during challenging times. And these are challenging times. And we can't, I mean, everybody gets overwhelmed. Clients that come in are overwhelmed every day. You know, maybe not all day every day, but they're overwhelmed a lot. And once that over, you get overwhelmed and then you know what happens. You start forgetting where'd you put your keys or, or you start engaging in risky behavior, you know, oh, I'm hungry. Well, you know, it'd just be easier just to eat this garbage. Um, although I know it's not good for me, I, I want to do it. So it's when we get overwhelmed that it kind of takes us away from our goals and what we want. And, but, and we don't know how to get back. And I can't tell you how many people... I think will really benefit from listening to the second half of the show because you can help us understand that you can get out of being overwhelmed and that there, it's not that hard to do. But it's just like when we talked about the, the suicide conversation. If you don't know how to do it, you're not going to be able to do it. So we've got something to look forward to in the second part of the show. 
We'll be back after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. It's words you never heard. English isn't always the most expressive language in the world. Many other languages have words that are much more descriptive in their meaning. University of East London psychologist Tim Lomas compiled words from other countries that don't translate or have an English equivalent. Heiskos is a Norwegian word that means sitting in front of a crackling fireplace enjoying the warmth. Gula is Spanish for the desire to eat simply for the taste. And shamomachamo is a Georgian word that means eating past the point of satiation due to sheer enjoyment. Feierament is a German word for the festive mood at the end of a working day. To quote Mark Twain, the difference between the right word and the nearly right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. back and we're going to talk a little bit more about resilience and you know resilience is not a trait it's not like you either have it or you don't it's something it's a muscle and it's something that you can build Um, and I think that's a hard thing for some people to believe so when you look at it as a muscle Jackie how do you start to work it how do you start to build it the fastest way to build resilience is first to do a deep, slow breath and ask one question. If you find that you are in overwhelm, you've got the brain fog, you've forgotten, starting to forget things, the first question is, what am I thinking? Not what am I feeling? Because emotions come from our thinking. So what am I thinking? And actually, emotions don't really come from our thinking. They come in in my world. They come from the meaning we've assigned to what we're thinking. They come from our belief systems. But the fastest path to build resilience is first to recognize that you need it. Second, to decide that you're going to test this theory that it's a muscle and you can build it. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe Lee. You just get to go and experiment and test it. And the first way to test it is to ask, what am I thinking? What do I believe about that? There was a time, Lee, that dirty dishes in the sink would set me off. I'd come home from work and there'd be dirty dishes in the sink. And it 
had a meaning in my world. It meant somebody hadn't done their chores. It meant that they were being rude and mean because now I'd have to clean the kitchen before I could cook dinner. It absolutely came boiled down to the fact they did not love or respect me. Now that I know that it's the meaning I assigned, not what was actually happening, I come home, if there's dirty dishes in the sink, you know what it means? There's dirty dishes in the sink. <laughs> and that's it. And that's it. But we don't know that it's the meaning we've assigned. We think it's what the other person did or didn't do or what we said or didn't say. And we believe that because that's the culture that we're in. I mean, all you got to do is listen to a country music song where it says, you make me feel like a natural woman. No, he didn't. You felt like a natural woman and you're giving him credit because you want him to feel good. Yeah, we try to control each other's emotions and we believe that other people control ours. And the first step in resiliency is to pull that control of your own emotional state back inside your skin where it belongs. And we can all do that. You know, that's huh? I always tell people, focus on what you can control. Don't focus on what's out of your control. Use a little positive psychology. We Every day, we have three times more positive events that happen to us than negative. But you know what the brain remembers? Oh, well, we're hardwired, as we know, to remember the negative. Absolutely. So, you know, that's it's work. Um, <laughs> okay. So you think it's work. I think it's fun. And the beauty of this is that we're both right. Have you ever seen kids really look, really learn how to play a game, really go at playing? You oh, yeah. Kids, they are putting a lot of effort into it. It looks like they're working hard, but what are they doing? They're having, having so much fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's and, better than that? Yeah. What's better than that? So here's the deal. Mary Poppins said it best. In every job that's to be done, there is an element of fun. Find the fun and snap the jobs again. When someone's thinking about retraining their brain, rewiring their brain, becoming more resilient, if you decide that it's all about the work, realize that you can also look for where that's fun. And I'll be honest, when I'm at a traffic light and I'm taking three deep, slow breaths and I'm smiling, this has become a lot of fun. I get almost the same reaction from people in the other cars to a smile that I used to get when I would put a red clown nose on when I was at a red traffic light. And which is healthier for you? Both are just as healthy because laughter, it's impossible to be in fight or flight and laugh at the same time. You are exactly right. Because laughter makes you exercise your lungs and that diaphragm the same way deep, slow breathing does. So we were talking about laughter and, you know, and, and I think when I think of my memories, I think about funny stories that people tell me and it's, it gives it such a positive association with that person. I would much rather think about a funny story than about something that bad that happened to me with that person. <laughs> well, you, you just hit upon the second way to build resilience. The first way is to ask the question, what am I thinking? Right. The second way is to ask, 
what's happening now? Because most of our overwhelm comes from when we've been jumped out into the future or been hijacked by our past. And if we go, what's happening now, then we can go, well, wait a minute. What I was thinking about was about either the past or the future. And either way, Lee, what you just described is perfect. It's about picking the perspective that you want to view the past through. Because we've all got good or bad memories, no matter with the per with any one person in our lives. I mean, nobody's perfect. So we've all got good or bad with even the same person. We can pick which memory we choose to associate. I love the fact that you picked one with laughter in it. Well, I think that, you know, funny stories, good times, good memories, those are the things that give me resilience. When I hold those in my heart, they make me stronger. They really, really do. It's a really good point. And the more you can do that, the stronger your resilience muscle will get. And when somebody is projecting into the future and they're worried about the future and they're all of you know, oh, the catastrophe of what could happen, they, they're catastrophizing. They can also do exactly the same thing with the future. Since what they're doing is making up a story about how the future could turn out, they might as well choose to make up a kind, happy story for themselves and other people. So how do you help people do that? Well, the first thing is the hardest thing, which is first getting them to even allow the possibility that they can shift a belief. The person who says to me, well, I am who I am. That's not my ideal client. Because if, from that perspective, they're going to continue with the same pattern because they've already made the decision that they can't change. You know, it's so interesting because when somebody says, I am what I am, my response to that is, you're stuck. Mm. And the first thing we got to do is get that brain, create some neuroplasticity, get that brain unstuck, create some mental flexibility. I, would, I was very blessed. I had a coach who was an in-your-face kind of person. And she said, you are not stuck. You are stubborn. <laughs> and in that moment, what she did for me was she took it from stuck, something outside of my control, to an attitude of stubbornness, something that I could choose to control. So how did you, how did you, what did you do to make that choice? I mean, was it as simple as when she said, you need, you're, you're stubborn and your response was, no, I'm not. Or how'd that go? Well, you know, there, there, there was a contentious relationship between the two of us for, for the time, actually years that we worked together because I really was stubborn. I was absolutely certain that I could become successful and stay a secret at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that was my biggest challenge. I had the, I call it the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room was, if you really got to know me, you wouldn't like me. And I knew that was true because of early childhood history, where people who were important to me had left. And it left me with the sense of I wasn't lovable or I wasn't good enough or any of the other variations of that limiting belief. And from that limiting belief, it wasn't safe for me 
to let people get close to me. It wasn't safe for people to really get to know me. I was a speaker standing on stages and at the same time, completely invisible. It was a very strange thing that my coach was like, Jackie, I don't understand how someone who speaks as often as you do makes as little money as you do. And it's because the audience could feel that I was not connecting with them, that there was something between us. And what was between us was this secret fear that I had that they would think that I wasn't good enough and they would leave too if they got to know me. That is a great story to share, Jackie, because I think everybody on some level can identify with that. We've had a time in our life where we just, we are, we weren't on our game. I mean, my book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, and different things impact us throughout life. And that's a great, you make a great point with that story. Well, you know, it, it, the, the blessing of that particular coach, and it was a, it was a, a I was being uh, batted back and forth in my brain between two of them, two very different personalities, and they were coaching together in this one program. And at one point, they said that, you know, I was so good at hiding. I had created a brand. Oh, my God. Anybody out there who thinks you create a brand and then you become successful, don't do that because you'll waste a lot of your time, talent. And I put a significant amount of my treasure into that particular journey. And I had branded myself as the elephant tamer helping people tame the elephant in the room, those limiting beliefs that hold us back and keep us playing small. And my coach realized that the elephant was in the way, but they didn't realize exactly how it was and they did not do mindset work. So they couldn't help me here too much on this one aspect. The elephant was in the way, all right. One, it was distracting. Brands do not need to be distracting people. You know, it was distracting. And I live in Sarasota, Florida. That was the year that Ringling decided to retire the elephants. And so people who met me at networking events and saw the elephant tamer wanted to talk to me about pachyderms. Was not what I had intended. When my coach told me, lose the brand, actually, the man said, kill the elephant. Everybody in the room went into mourning on my behalf in that moment. What he meant was, yeah, you got to quit using the elephant. It's distracting. So that's how my book got written. You know, just like your book, which I love your title, by the way, get, get, turn your brain on to get your game on. My book came out of that struggle. My plane ride home from that event is where my book got written. And it ended up becoming your path from secret to success. And it was all of the hard skills, all of the tactical things about putting together marketing messages, about being able to relax. It was one of the first templates I created that took people step by step through building these muscles. And it was specifically written for the audience of women entrepreneurs and speakers. Because it was the skill set that I was most needed when I started out and couldn't find. What's become since then is that the next book, Your Path from Beating Yourself Up to Beating Your Own Drum, that is the next step about building resiliency. So it's less about the tactics of sales 
and more about the mindset and the rewriting your belief systems around what things mean, because this is the skill set that we need today. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, I was shut down for five weeks earlier in the year, as a lot of people were. And I actually used that time and I thought, you know, I need to do I need to take a master class. And so I did. I took one in resilience and I loved the metaphor that they used. You know, you're the captain of your ship. Everybody has the ability to be the captain of their ship and everybody wants to be. Absolutely. But, you know, the water that your ship is in, that's your direct environment. That's where you live. That's your job. That's your relationships. Every ship has a compass, you know, that what do we use to guide us? Well, we don't use a compass. We use our feelings. We use our emotions. Mm -hmm. um, but do we pay attention to them? Do we do we pay attention to our intuition? Um, we could all do that just a little better. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and every boat's got a steering wheel. Well, that's your personal values. And that's one of the things that I decided instead of just getting so frustrated with the pandemic is that I am just going to use this time and ask myself, reflect, what can I learn? And what I did, I didn't really, I learned, I got very clear on what my personal values are. That's my steering wheel. Um, you know, and, and we all, if you're in a boat sailing around, you're going to get a leak, you know, and, and whether when you're human, my link leak was my on a cognitive level i had all these ruminating thoughts i'm never going to be open up again you know da, 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 da. Uh -huh. and, and i needed some wind in my sails and, and that for me that wind of course was a, effective coping skills and i needed the weather to change to get good and i needed to keep the other boats around me close and that's of course that's my family and my friends and then that I, I then to get to your destination, what do you need? You need goals. So you need to know where you're going. Hey, there you go. But you know that really stuck with me, and I, I find that it helps me in any situation because you know the direct environment we're in uh, from, from March 23rd to May 1st when I was closed down, it was very different than it is today, or that it was May 2nd when I reopened. Um, so oh, yeah. ev everything plays into our resilience, but we can't let everything overwhelm us. You know, it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to just step on it here. We absolutely can let everything overwhelm us and people do all the time. The challenge is, are you willing to not let that be a permanent choice? Are you willing, are people willing to choose to captain their own ship at a time when the media is telling them they're helpless? And that's what we're being sold. We have been sold a bill of goods that we cannot thrive in these times. And Lee, what I'm finding is that people who are thriving are feeling guilty that they're thriving because they're being told that everybody is not thriving. And here I am thriving. Oh, my God, I'm no longer part of everybody. I'm weird. And so they're not talking about it. They're not sharing 
how they're staying inspiring to themselves and other people can't choose to be inspired by them because they're not willing to share it for fear that somebody's going to burst their bubble and somehow, you know, take away their joy. Well, you just said a four letter word and that was fear. And I think fear is the most restricting emotion that we have. It can be motivating. I mean, a lot of people use fear to be motivated, but not everybody. Um, uh, more, more times than not, what I see with my clients is that fear holds them back. It restricts them. Oh. How, do you, how do you dance around that? Well, there you go. You can dance with fear. Um, you know, here, many people have heard that fear is an acronym for false evidence appearing real. And as good as that acronym is, it comes with a bucket of something that I think is even more constricting than fear. And that's shame. Because, oh, my God, I'm believing something false. Our brains are so slippery down this slope. So I came up with a different meaning of the acronym for fear. And actually, I didn't come up with it. My daughter gave it to me. My daughter, Stephanie, is brilliant at creating these kinds of uh, ways of perceiving the world. Mm -hmm. She says fear means forget everything and run. I love that <laughs> because that's what happens in our bodies. And when we realize that that's what's happening, that we have forgotten everything and we are running, then we can start to laugh at ourselves a little bit. And the minute we start to laugh, our memory returns and we realize we can reclaim our choice of what we're thinking and what we're believing. Well, I love that. Forget everything and run. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that, but I, I will share credit. What's your daughter's name? Stephanie. Okay, oh. that's a Stephanieism. And, you know, when you were talking about being the ship and being the captain of your ship, somebody said to her, you know, with this COVID thing, we are all in the same boat. And she responded, oh, no, we're not. <sighs> we all are, have our own boats, but we are all in the same storm. There you we're go. We're all in the same storm, but we each have our own boat. And I love the fact that they were using that to teach resilience, this concept of you have your own boat. Lee, we live in unprecedented times. For the first time out in history, outside of the blood story in the Bible, for the first time in history, we are having a common human experience all around the globe at the same time. It's a new experience for the world. And we've forgotten that. We keep trying to put the old rules of the way things had been, like like things that ever stayed the same, but we like to pretend that things stayed the same, that they were predictable. The reality is that right now, everybody's had to face the fact that nothing's predictable and we don't have the control over where we thought we had control. And it is really the right time to start focusing in on where you do have control. And the first place you have control is over what's happening inside your head. But that means you've got to stop giving permission for other people to brainwash you. 
And I started that conversation with some of my clients. And I said, who did you give permission to brainwash you to today? And it started making them think a little harder about what they listen to, who they're talking to, and what they're reading. Well, and how much are they listening to it? Because if you keep the news going 24-7, you're keeping, you know, you're keeping that that same chitter chatter going that's beating mm-hmm. you down there's not a lot of um unless you're an entrepreneur and you're listening to the news for where in this news is there a problem that i can get paid to fix that's the entrepreneurial mindset so if you're an entrepreneur whatever you're listening to i know you've got that filter for the rest of us the filter is usually set to the caveman brain, which is how bad is it going to get? Yeah. And, and, and what's wrong with this picture without the critical thinking? So the key to resilience and the reason you're, everybody wants to develop it now is it gives you back your ability to think critically, to choose who puts ideas into your head. It gives you back your ability to be the captain of your ship. And that's something that just hearing those words, I can be the captain of my ship, that puts a smile on my face. That puts joy in my heart. Um, You know, we've just got a few minutes left, and you have so much great information to share. And you had shared a website with me earlier that where you you have a gift that you want to share with everyone that's listened with us today. What is the name of that website? Website is... You can't do it wrong.com. Now there's no apostrophe in it. So it's just Y-O-U-C-A-N-T do it wrong. You can't do it wrong.com. And what you're going to find there is the first key to building resilience, which is getting to know, like, and trust the one person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. You. So you get the no like and trust factor assessment is there. You can actually get your number and find out where you stand on this self-assessment for living a life that is full of joy with the one person you're going to live your whole life with. So is that a long assessment or is it pretty quick and easy? Oh, it's pretty quick and easy. We do it live in all of my classes. But anyone can read it, take it, and then start interacting with me. I'd love to hear their scores, Lee. So if they have a score they want to share with you, how do they do that? Is that on that website? They'll get an email from me with all of my contact information. And, of course, they can always get through to me at the suicidepreventionmovement.com. That's our YouTube channel for the Teen Suicide Prevention Society. That's great. And I think we're going to be talking a little bit later in the year, a little bit more about the importance of suicide prevention, aren't we? Well, we certainly are because you are the most amazing person and you have said yes to coming and being interviewed on the suicide prevention show. And that'll be coming up in December. So we'll make sure that anybody who takes advantage of the know, like, and trust yourself assessment will get the information about the show coming up in December. That's great. I love, you know, nobody likes anything more than getting something that will help them for free. 
And, but it also places responsibility. You know, some people are like, mm, I don't know if I want to do that. Then I might have to do something. I might have create expectations that I need to create change. But it's nice to know that if you, you do take the assessment, you do feel like you want to create change. Do you have a direct contact? Do you have a direct place to go? And I'm sure you work with people through Zoom meetings and you're in Florida. I'm in Texas and we made all this happen without any problems for the most part. We, we are now living in a world without boundaries. Let's enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, what is a closing thought that you want to bet, put in people's head um, about today's talk? If you could leave them with one thought, what would it be? Decide today that you can bounce, not break. And if someone tells you that your relationship with them is breakable, let them go. Wow. Great words. Um those, those are such great words. You got another one for us? The best friend is the one that looks back at you in the mirror and mm. reminds you that you're lovable. That is even better than the first one. Jackie, you are just full of wise words, and you've been so kind to share your thoughts with us today and, and a gift um, that we can all take with us. And if we use it for nothing more than just a little internal reflection, we can grow from it. I know I'm going to log on <laughs> and I'm going to take it. Because for just that, anytime I can learn something about myself and have something new to think about, I find that to be, as you, I love the way you use the word opportunity. And nobody can have too many opportunities opportunity is exciting don't forget it's the website we're going to say it one more time it is you can't do it wrong.com no apostrophe of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Music